0: Welcome to the Portland Countdown, a project of the World Parkinson Coalition made possible with support from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. I'm John Palfreman. And I'm
1: Dave Iverson. Each month, John and I take a look at a specific topic of interest in Parkinson's disease as we count down to the Fourth World Parkinson Congress in Portland, Oregon in September 2016. Our subject today is the history of levodopa, or dopamine replacement therapy. It was 50 years ago that Levodopa first became available to patients, the first great breakthrough in the treatment of the disease. Unfortunately, you can also argue that it's the last great breakthrough in Parkinson's treatment. And while dopamine replacement therapy is very helpful in treating some Parkinson's symptoms, it's not a cure. Indeed, over time, even its effectiveness can wax and wane for many patients.
0: We wanted to explore the history of L-DOPA, how it came into usage, and why it's taken so long to improve its effectiveness or to develop new breakthroughs in the treatment of Parkinson's. To do that, we spoke with Dr. Angela Sensi-Nielsen, who leads the Basal Ganglia Pathophysiology Laboratory at Lund University in Sweden. Angela, let's start with a bit of history. What was the rationale back in the 1950s for trying L-DOPA as a treatment for Parkinson's disease? Where does the idea come from?
2: Well, it comes from partly animal studies and partly pathological studies in Parkinsonian patients. The animal studies are extremely well-known in Sweden because they were performed here, actually at Lund University, by the Nobel Prize winner, Arvid Carson, who discovered that by first he depleted dopamine from the brains of rabbits using a drug called reserpine, and then he gave the rabbits levodopa, and the The rabbit started to move again and the effect was spectacular. And based on these very observations he proposed uh, at that time revolutionary theory that dopamine is a neurotransmitter in the brain that controls movement. And at that time nobody believed him. It took a few years before this theory was accepted. And it was determinant uh, for this to be accepted that Ule uh, Ornikevich in Wien, in Austria, examined the brains of people who had, had Parkinson's disease and found a profound depletion of dopamine in the striatum. And that kicked off the entire story, the development of levodopa as, as a treatment, the idea that dopamine is central to the pathophysiology of Parkinson's disease, which is, still holds true today.
0: OK, so it was like filling up a gas tank. The brain had too little dopamine, so you wanted to put it back. But explain, Angela, to our listeners, why, why you just don't put dopamine in? Why do you have to put levodopa
2: Yes, because, well, it's very simple, because dopamine, if you give dopamine in any way outside of the brain, it will not be able to get to the brain. Dopamine cannot simply cross the barrier between the bloodstream and the brain, whereas levodopa can. And once it is in the brain, it will be converted to dopamine there.
0: Oh, I see. So that's that's brilliant. So now, Angela, despite this idea, which had a great scientific backing... The first tests on humans were not clear. Some people like Berkmeyer and colleagues claimed to get striking results, but others failed completely. Is that correct?
2: Yes, I I understand that it took a long time to learn how to give levodopa uh, in a way that was efficacious. I wasn't, uh, well, perhaps I was born at that time, but I'm not sure. But anyway, I have understood that in the first trials, uh, levodopa was given to low doses and it wasn't effective. Uh, There was a study done in Sweden drawing the conclusion that levodopa wasn't effective in Parkinson's disease uh, back in the 60s. Uh, think that it was an American neurologist called George Cotsias who uh, figured out how this drug should be done to be efficacious and that uh, occurred uh, I think late in the 60s and then He learned that, we or taught everybody thereafter, that Levodopa has to be given in high quantities and it has to be given repeatedly before achieving its full effect. And when people followed his advice, then the treatment was very effective in, in the hands of everybody.
0: Did people think at the time, when they got it to work, that this was maybe a cure?
2: Oh, yes, of course. Once it was realized that levodopa was effective, and in Sweden, this happened in the early 70s, I believe. Uh, Sweden is is the country where I work. So then uh, people thought that they had found a solution to Parkinson's disease because the facts were absolutely spectacular.
1: And given that spectacular success, what then led people to believe that perhaps it wasn't a cure after all? Once levodopa, carbidopa became the standard form of treatment for people with Parkinson's in the early 70s, what problems began to emerge that led people to think, well, maybe it's not a a cure after all?
2: Well, it became obvious that after a few years, at least, that the, the patient's way of responding to the treatment changed during the evolution of the disease. So while the response to levodopa was excellent in the first year's, uh, once the dosage was set. Then after a few years, the motor response to levodopa became fluctuating and many patients developed also involuntary movements. And in many patients, these problems were very, very severe at that time. And they, in, I remember I've heard stories that some Of these problems could be so severe that it became not obvious whether it was better to give the medicine to the patients or just not give it. And in other words, people learned that after a honeymoon period where the therapy is very, very successful, then comes a so-called complication period where the response to the drug is different and more fluctuating.
1: And that's in part, I assume, because of course the disease is continuing to progress even though the treatment can be effective.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So can you describe, Angela, what some of the difficulties are in, even though levodopa, carbidopa can be such an effective treatment, why it's not as good as the original form of, of dopamine in the brain itself? Does it have to do with how it gets absorbed, with the amount, with the wearing off? What are the some of the issues? Yeah.
2: Let's say that while the brain still has enough nerve endings of dopaminergic character, so let's put it in another way. If there are sufficient number of dopamine neurons paired in the brain, levodopa is a very, very successful therapy because it boosts the function of those cells that are still there once uh, the number of dopamine neurons or, or say, dopamine nerve endings in the striatum, I should say, once the number of dopamine nerve endings in the striatum is highly depleted, then it will happen that the majority of the dopamine that is formed from levodopa comes from other cells than dopamine neurons. And those cells will release it in the wrong place, in the wrong time, and the response will be very erratic. It will be abnormal. And this is what happens in the, in the complication stages of the disease. In these stages, I, I know patients uh, report they feel when their drug starts to act in the brain, they feel the peak of the dopamine coming along, and then they feel the effects wearing off. And this is what we call the motor fluctuation, the fluctuating response to the treatment.
1: So is one of the basic problems that really still remains today, some 50 years after levodopa therapy became the norm for Parkinson's, that we just haven't been able to figure out the best delivery system, that it's a problem of providing either a continuous amount or the right amount when it's needed so that you don't have these peaks and valleys? Is that the essential problem that we're still struggling with?
2: Yes. Well, of course, in a situation where the release of this dopamine in the brain formed by levodopa is erratic, it makes a lot of sense to deliver the drug in a more continuous fashion to try and keep at least the blood levels of the drug, very stable over the course of the day. That makes a lot of sense. And indeed, there are uh, now uh, treatments that have been recently approved, even by the FDA, that achieve this goal by delivering a gel that contains uh, levodopa directly to the gastrointestinal tract. And this delivery can be uh, held constant for all the hours that the patient needs.
1: John, why don't you take it from there?
0: Yes, yeah, so you were talking there about duodopa, correct? That's been used in Sweden for some time. Yes. And is it true to say that even though that's being given continuously over many hours of the day, patients, even, even though they're getting a continuous source of levodopa, they still get off periods?
2: Well, I believe they do. But however, I also know that there is a highly significant improvement in the off time. If you if the levodopa is given this way compared to the standard oral therapy uh, the continuous infusion is significantly better in providing a stable symptomatic improvement.
0: Now Angela levodopa is a, a surgical solution it's a fairly invasive duodopa is a surgical solution.
2: Yes. Duodopa is invasive, yes, and very, very expensive.
0: Now, why has it been so hard to find less invasive ways of delivering tablets with gels or patches
2: continuously? Well, there are different problems. I think one problem is that levodopa, and I know that because we, we do experiments with this drug in, in laboratory animals, levodopa is not such a stable molecule. One cannot just place this molecule in a solution and leave it there and hope that you can keep Give the solution for 24 hours, and it will still be active. One one needs to be very clever to find ways to maintain this drug uh, active for a very long time in a solution because it's not terribly stable. The other, I think, is is a matter of absorption. The uh, levodopa is, um, if it is given uh, per orally, so with tablets, uh, it's going to be absorbed only in a, in a short segment of the gastrointestinal tract. In other words, a relatively short surface through which the gastrointestinal tract can absorb this drug, and, uh, which means that to obviate the problem, levodopa should be given by other routes, for example, uh, intravenously or subcutaneously, and that is very tricky. I mean, I mean how would you do that uh, over many hours uh, in a day?
0: It sounds, 50 years is a a long time to, to work on this problem, even though it's a difficult problem in medicinal chemistry. Aren't there ideas, Angela, like special pills that lodge in the gastrointestinal tract and deliver it slowly, accordion pills, I think they're called?
2: Oh, yes. I think uh, I've heard that a slow release formulation is has been recently approved by the FDA for example the I'm not sure if I can name, mention the name of the drug in this context but it's a carbidopa levodopa extended release capsules that it's already a if I understand it correctly, a great improvement compared to standard tablets because they, are, uh, they have a, a slower release of the active drug, and therefore uh, they can be given uh, three times per day, or two, three times per day, instead of up to seven times per day. So already there, there is an improvement. And there are, of course, several other solutions that are being studied and they need to be evaluated in larger clinical trials. For example, uh, method to deliver solutions containing levodopa subcutaneously.
0: Now, Angela, levodopa rose to prominence at a time when Parkinson's disease was seen as primarily a motor disorder. Yes. And it's no longer true. We, we know that Parkinson's causes lots of things. How has this more holistic theory of Parkinson's affected levodopa? Because levodopa can still have effects on non-motor symptoms as well as motor symptoms. Is that correct?
2: Of course it does, of course it does, and indeed there are well, there are several aspects to this standpoint. One is a, an aspect of uh, that it is, it is true that the Parkinson's disease affects many systems in addition to the dopamine neurons, and the other is that uh, it is always more attractive for researchers to explore territories where people know almost nothing about compared to continue to work on the same track. So a larger number of researchers are attracted towards the area of the non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease today, but let's go back to the effects of levodopa. It is correct that there are many non-motor symptoms in Parkinson's disease, but it is also correct to say that not all non-motor symptoms are non-dopaminergic. In other words, there are studies indicating that continuous infusion of uh, levodopa will improve also many non-motor symptoms and uh, Also because if the the response to the drug is less fluctuating, um, those uh, mood changes, those cognitive changes that concur with the off-stage, so-called off-stage, will be improved. So if we reduce the off-time, also mood changes and cognitive changes related to the off-time will be improved.
0: Fascinating. Um, one, One other thing you touched on earlier, Angela, a patient who's had Parkinson's for many years is, is likely to have re- very few functioning dopamine cells left. So when you said that the L-dopa we're taking was processed by other cells, what what kind of cells are you thinking of? Are you thinking of serotonin cells?
2: For example, yes for example. And also among dopamine cells, uh, I corrected myself and I said I'm talking about now dopamine nerve endings and I'm talking about dopamine nerve endings in the motor part of the striatum. This is where we know there is a very profound depletion uh, starting from four or five years after the diagnosis. But uh, the other um, system of dopamine neurons, at least, uh, for example, those that innervate the ventral striatum, they appear to be well preserved for several years into the disease. Um, and other, of course, serotonin neurons are also partly affected by the disease process, but not as much as the dopamine neurons, which means that uh, if the dopamine nerve endings disappear and the serotonin nerve endings don't, then at a certain point the impact of dopamine being released from serotonin neurons will be predominant over the dopamine release from the other nerve endings in detecting the response to levodopa.
0: So that, that partly explains why it continues to work to get some benefit for years and years?
2: Yes, it smooths out the responses at least. At least that's the least we can say. There are certainly also other kind of effects of a continuous uh, dopamine stimulation which uh, we do not know very well because they haven't been studied. For example, a more stable uh, stimulation of the dopamine receptors in the brain will uh, produce a different pattern of cell signaling compared to a pulsatile stimulation of dopamine receptor. That is a well accepted notion but there hasn't been any dedicated research project to really compare what happens to the signaling pathways if we give levodopa as oral tablet or in terms of continuous infusion.
0: Dave? wanted
2: to
1: pursue one idea about why, returning for a moment to the idea of developing alternative methods of delivering levodopa, carbidopa, as you suggest, there are many things now on the horizon. Uh, Duodopa in Europe, or Duopa as it's now called in the, in the United States, the extended delivery pill that you mentioned, um, the subcutaneous patch. There's even something sort of like an asthma inhaler, as I understand it, that, that may be on the market soon but to pick up on the point john was referencing about about that it's taken a long time i wonder if it's fair to say that in some ways it's perhaps taken a long time because it's it's sort of a fine tuning problem as opposed to working on you know the next big idea can you say something about that in terms of the research community? Is it, would it be fair to say that perhaps this hasn't received as much attention because researchers, perhaps understandably, wanted to focus on bigger problems or, or new problems rather than something that was kind of a, a smaller fine-tuning sort of issue?
2: Well, this is definitely correct to say. Um, however, I also would like to mention that there are many types of researchers, there are many types of research. So, um, a neurobiology, a basic molecular neurobiology, would not be attracted to the same questions as a, a neuropharmacologist. And, for example, neuropharmacologists do understand the need of improving um, the symptomatic therapy of Parkinson's disease, but with dopaminergic agents and with non-dopaminergic agents, there is a a very, very strong and clear understanding of this point. But then, of course, uh, they uh, can only work on these topics if they have funding to do the work. And then the the question is, who's going to fund this kind of research for those who are interested in in these questions? I think this is where the main question is.
1: Understood. I think that's well put, and I I think, I guess I'm interested in this in part because from a patient point of view, I think there's sometimes an understandable frustration, and I wonder if you think that that patients should become more involved both in advocating for this sort of improvement, both within the research community, but also to the regulatory and, and funding agencies, whether that's in the United States, the National Institutes of Health, or to big pharma, that this is something that really matters. And as we look for the big idea, the, the real something that would actually cure or, or modify the progression of the disease, we also really need to f- focus on these everyday sorts of problems.
2: I totally agree. And uh, I think really that the, the voice of the patients has a determinant role. We need to hear the voice of the patient. We need to hear what you care for. And the patients have a lot of power in influencing funding decisions, at least at the level of private organizations, but I believe also at the level of governmental uh, initiatives. And uh, definitely um, a well-organized patient advocacy group will be very helpful.
1: You work at, you're part of a, a legendary place in the history of Parkinson's research, Lund University, where Andres Bjorklund and Ole Lindvall and, and many other so noted researchers have made such a, a contribution. I'm, I'm curious as to where you see the, the future, given your work at, at such a legendary place where so much of the work has been focused on dopamine replacement ideas. But as John suggests now, there's a realization that to f- fix Parkinson's, we also have to go beyond those dopaminergic um, replacement ideas. What's the current thinking at a place like Lund that has been so central to, uh, to the development of, of Parkinson's research?
2: Well, I think there is an understanding that we need to work on several parallel tracks because uh, it is unlikely that with one single approach, we will solve all kinds of problems uh, related to Parkinson's disease. So in Lund, as in many other large uh, centers, there are many parallel projects addressing different kinds of questions, and uh, starting from potential uh, early treatment with the idea of modifying the, the risk for the disease, or the evolution of the disease, that's one question. The other is what do we do once the disease is already established and the response to the treatment starts to become complicated by dyskinesias or fluctuations, what do we do then? Then it's, it's a parallel track of research and the approaches and the questions will be perhaps different from the first one that I mentioned. And then we have the um, another a third approach, which is, for example, can we modulate uh, non motor symptoms or very complex symptoms with uh, completely new approach, strategies, including uh, neurostimulation? I mean, all these questions uh, are very different. They, are, they require different sets of skills, and it's important to maintain this breadth in the research.
1: That was Dr. Angela Cincy Nilsson, who leads the basal ganglia pathophysiology laboratory at Lund University in Sweden. And John, I think the history of levodopa is so telling in so many ways about the history of the disease itself. It, as we have talked about and Dr. Nilsson talked about, it's, the, it's this wondrous breakthrough, and yet we seem sort of stalled, both in terms of refining its effectiveness and in developing the next great breakthrough, which of course is testimony in part to the complexity of this of this disease.
0: Yes, I mean, I think you can say that they were very lucky to find levodopa, that it works better than anybody can expect. And what, what surprises me is that most neuroscientists still have a very murky uh, idea of why it works. But from the point of view of patients, nothing would make more difference than having a more effective means to deliver levodopa so that we could avoid some of the Motor complications.
1: Exactly. And and as she suggested in our interview, one of the challenges, of course, is to get both researchers and the people who have money to focus on that problem, because it's not as sexy to come up with a refinement of levodopa therapy, even though there are now some on the, on the verge of, of, of happening. It's not, it's not as exciting a scientific problem as, as perhaps developing the next great breakthrough. And we want both, of course, but I think it is really important, especially from a patient perspective, to not forget the former, that we live in the here and now. It's not a time-neutral situation and we need to make sure that we bring everything we can to providing that assistance um, right now.
0: I think that's right. There's a sense in which you get the idea that people think that it's good enough. We've got a treatment for Parkinson's disease. We shouldn't be satisfied with that, but I think the potential is much greater, and this is probably an area where patients should become more assertive, I think, in trying to push their agenda.
1: I agree. And, and there's no perhaps better uh, conclave for <laughs> addressing that concern and for putting forward additional patient advocacy than the World Parkinson Congress in, in Portland, which remains, you know, John, I think one of the really unique gatherings because it, we're all together, um, researchers, scientists, patient community, um, spouses alike. It's the only time when that happens, and it's a good place, I think, for us to continue that conversation. That wraps up our edition of Portland Countdown. I'm Dave Iverson.
0: And I'm John Palferman. Until the next time. Portland Countdown is brought to you by the World Parkinson Coalition, with technical support provided by Danny Bringer. Special thanks to our expert guests who make this series possible and who serve the Parkinson's community. Support for Portland Countdown comes from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit WPC2016.org to learn about the upcoming Fourth World Parkinson Congress in September 2016.